Tonight we have a difficult parable. It's a parable that's confusing. Uh, it's misunderstood. It's often misinterpreted. And this is an important parable to understand because it is important for the Christian life. Two great lies that have been promoted in our culture during the past 20 years. Two great lies that you have heard and I have heard of this. One, if you work hard enough, you can be anything you want to be. If you work hard enough, you can be anything you want to be. And the second is that you can be the best in the world at something. Um, These are things that we were fed as children. I'm sure you remember hearing this growing up. You can be anything you want to be and you can be the best in the world at something. And these lies have been accepted and promoted by lots of folks, Christians and non-Christians. And what it does to us, the reason that this is so insidious, is that it it teaches us that success uh, is defined as being the master of one's destiny. That the way we think about success is that I have to be the master of my my own destiny, have to achieve to the highest level. It's possible because it's inside of me. I can do it. Um, there's a book. I'm sure you, I don't know if you guys, if this is still read in high school, Tom Wolfe's Bonfire of the Vanities. Did y'all read this in high school? If you're unfamiliar with it, Tom Wolfe is an American novelist and he does a wonderful job of, uh, of dissecting culture. And Bonfire of the Vanities is a book written about in the 80s. Uh, one of the main characters is a bond salesman on Wall Street in the 80s. And you're introduced to this guy. His name is Sherman McCoy. And one of the phrases he uses to refer to himself is that he is a master of the universe. And it's this this late 20th century definition of success that we have with him. He has a $3 million apartment in New York. He has great wealth. He has a family. He has money and prestige. The circles he runs in are high society. This is is the, the definition of success. Um, at least that we were presented in the late 20th century and might still hold today. So what I want you to do is I want you to turn to your neighbor and answer this question. How do you define success? Is it about faithfulness or is it about productivity? Is it about how much you can do with what you got? Is it about something else? How do you define success? So turn to your neighbor, answer that question for just 60 seconds. great conversation. can keep having it. Take the person out to lunch. Continue the conversation. Uh, We're going to look at this together tonight. We're going to read from Luke 19, verses 11 through 27. It's printed on the back of your bulletin if you want to follow along there. Uh, This is is God's word to us tonight. It is completely true. It is given to us in love. As they heard these things, they and this is the disciples, As they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Jesus said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him. And sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came to him, saying, 
Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to them, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. And a second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. And then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have at least collected with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him. Give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you, everyone who has, more will be given. But to the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is the word of the Lord. Um, so this parable is easy to misunderstand. It's um, especially with that last sentence, which we'll get to. But this parable, it's so easy to read this and think that it's about simple economics, this input output. Like if you work hard for Jesus and produce as much as possible, then when he returns, he'll give us rewards. Um, but is that what he's saying? Is Jesus saying that he wants us to be successful for him? Uh, to get the meaning of this parable, we need to look at the context, both the, the context that the Luke of Luke's gospel and also the context of our own lives to help us understand what Jesus is teaching about his kingdom. So context matters. You all know this. You look for context clues. And, and in Luke's gospel, context really matters. So what is Luke's context? This parable comes near the very end of Jesus' life. So it's, a, it's when his, the opposition to him are, is at the highest and there's great expectations on him. They've grown strong. And immediately after he tells this parable, Jesus um, enters into Jerusalem. He goes into the city for the last week of his ministry, the last week of his life on earth before he's crucified. And if you look at verse 11, Luke tells us specifically that Jesus speaks this parable because his disciples supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And the disciples thought the kingdom was going to appear immediately. Like when he rode into Jerusalem, they thought he was going to bring the kingdom immediately. So why is this? Well, the disciples believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah. He was the promised Savior of the Jews. And so they they heaped up all these expectations on him. In the first century century Palestine, the the area around Jerusalem, first century Palestine was was occupied by the Roman Empire. And they, they occupied and oppressed the people. And so many of the Jews longed for a day when the promised Messiah, the one who was going to come and save them, that he would come and he would drive out the Romans. And the disciples thought that when Jesus rides into Jerusalem as the rightful king of Israel and he sits on the throne of David, that everything will be made right. The kingdom will appear immediately. And then so Jesus tells this parable into those expectations. So Luke's context matters and also our context matters because when we hear these words about um, money and investment, and we immediately read this parable in light of Western capitalism and like post-industrial efficiency. We think about production and productivity and, um, and investment in return. But as we're going to talk about this, what we'll see is that the parable doesn't call for efficiency. It actually doesn't call for productivity. But look at verse 17 with me. Jesus 
um, celebrates the servant. He says, well done because of his faithfulness. Faithfulness. And the Bible regularly focuses on faithfulness over productiveness. So Jesus is giving us this parable to correct our expectations and to help us live in light of what is coming. So um, many people have read this parable as Jesus expecting us to do good work and to be successful. Uh, But I don't think that's what it teaches. So Jesus, in this parable, he tells it to explain how people are to live after he's gone. After he's crucified and risen and ascended into heaven and, and his people are waiting for him. This parable is written to help us make sense of how we're to live now in the time before his return. So um, in the parable, we've got this nobleman, right? This nobleman, and he goes away, and we're told in verse 12 that he goes away to inherit, to receive a kingdom for himself. Um, And what Jesus is saying is that he is the true king, that he is the one who has come. He is the one who has come to fulfill the role of the Messiah, and he is the one that his disciples should be longing for. But the kingdom, the way it comes, it comes in this already not yet way like it has come in him it has arrived in jesus it is here and it will fully come when he returns Um, and when he returns he promises that he will make all things new that he'll wipe every tear from our eyes that justice will roll down that he will make all things new and so Jesus' disciples have been with him for three years and as they approach jerusalem they think that now now is the time when the kingdom is going to come and jesus agrees but how it comes is different than what they want or expect because his followers expect the kingdom to come in strength and expect the kingdom to come and to end Roman oppression. But Jesus is teaching in this parable that people hate his kingdom and that people are going to try to block it from coming to fruition. And those who want to follow him are going to do so in the midst of a hostile world and a king who is absent. So the king must go away, we're told, to, to receive his kingdom. But before he goes, right, this nobleman gives his, his servants this gift of this big financial gift, which is a mina. And a mina is about, uh, today would be about 100 days wages. So like three months pay, this free and generous gift that the king gives to his servants. And all gifts bring responsibility with them. Right? This parable will teach that. Um, in Luke 12, Jesus says, to whom much is given, much is required. So for you, a question Um, Do you see all that you have? If you're a Christian, do you see all that you have as a kingdom resource? Your time, your money, your skills, even your pain and your sadness? Do you think of your life as a resource that Jesus has given you? That all of your life is a gift from God and it's a resource for his kingdom? So the nobleman promises his servants that he will be successful and he will return as king. In the meantime, they are to engage in business until he returns. And here's where we get the parable wrong. This word until, right? This is what we read, that we engage in business until he returns. And it's this little phrase in Greek. Um, it's a really simple phrase, in ho, is the, is the Greek. And it's um, New Testament scholar Kenneth Bailey explains that this phrase, it's translated until in most of our Bibles. And understanding this phrase is actually crucial to understanding this parable. So it can mean until, the phrase literally means in which or in who, um, but it can legitimately be translated because. Um, if, why does this matter? If we translate the phrase until, this is what the master's saying. He's saying, go to work. You don't have much time. Make as much money as you can while I'm gone because I expect you to turn a profit. I expect you to turn a profit. But if we translate this as because, 
Then the master is saying this. He's saying, engage in trade, engage in business in a way which you know that I'm coming back or engage because I'm coming back with the confidence that I'm going to return. And if we translate it this way, it fits the context of the parable better because it takes the focus from making as much money as possible, right, for these servants. It takes the focus from making as much money as possible as they can because Jesus is coming back soon. And it puts the focus on the way in which we're to work. All right, look at verse 17. What is Jesus' reward? Look at verse 17 with me. Um, He rewards, we already saw this, he rewards the servant's faithfulness. The master is saying, work in the confidence that I'm going to come back and I'm going to be crowned king when I return. And this matters. What you believe about Jesus' future promises of the kingdom of God deeply affects how you live now. Because if you believe that when Jesus returns, he's going to have demands on your productivity, this will, this will affect how you live now. This is really important. Jesus is saying that he rewards faithfulness in very little. Um, and that, that really affects how the church should engage with its neighbors and with the world. Um, right? This is not about us trying to work as hard as we can until Jesus comes back. Because of what the noble commends, faithfulness, not fruitfulness. So how does this change the way we think about how we should live? Well, first, um, I just want to point this out. Jesus says that he rewards faithfulness in the very little that he gives us. And I think this phrase, very little, is here to give us some humility about our lives. That in the grand scheme of things, when we look back on the annals of time, our lives will account for very little. Um, And this should give us some humility and free us up that our lives are important, but they're very little in the grand scheme of things. But in that very little, we're called to faithfulness for all of life is a gift from God. So I just want to apply this to two things in your lives. First, your work. And second, uh, the church. So first, the work. Um, A question I found myself asking uh, students recently is, what do you want to be when you grow up? Um, I feel like this is the time, and particularly juniors and seniors, when you guys are getting uh, pretty anxious about about what you're going to do when you grow up. What's next? How are you going to work? What job are you going to take? What internships are you going to apply for? And this, in, this parable helps us to ask, what type of work matters for the kingdom of God? What type of work actually matters for the kingdom of God? And the Bible says that all kinds of work matters to God and his kingdom. Martin Luther, who was a pastor in the 16th century and um, the man who began the, the Protestant Reformation, he, he wrote this. He said, the, the, the hands that milk the cow are as holy as the hands that celebrate the Eucharist or celebrates the Lord's Supper. And what he's saying in that is, is he's saying that the, what the Bible teaches is that the work that you will do, um, like the work, the, the, the work of, of producing milk for people is as valuable to the kingdom as the work of, of the pastor or of clergy. Um, this means that full-time Christian ministry is not holier than business. It's not holier work than medicine or practicing law. But God calls us to serve him and to work for his kingdom in all areas of life. Because we know that he is coming back to bring the fullness of his kingdom. So the work Jesus calls you to do is to work where you can participate with Christ and the love of your neighbor and of the world. Let this be the lens by which you make your career decisions. So hear me on this. If God is love and Christ is the image of God and Christ calls us to live lives of love where we love him and we love our neighbor, then this must be our lens as Christians. And we must ask the question when we enter into our work, how can I participate in God's love for the world? How can I participate in Christ's love for my neighbor? 
How can my work participate in this love and care of our world? In 1 Corinthians 15, which is a chapter where the Apostle Paul talks about uh, the resurrection of the body, the body. and it's this, this, this beautiful chapter where he lifts up what will happen when we are resurrected from the dead. And in that chapter, he actually says that um, if the resurrection of Christ didn't happen, then Christians of all people are to be pitied. Like, if, if the resurrection had happened, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we are foolish for being here. The church shouldn't exist. It's all, it's all a scam. It's a horrible idea. Don't give your life to it. But if he has risen from the dead, then it has, it has tremendous implications for our lives, for every aspect of our life. And he says this about work. He says um, that God is going to redeem his, culture, his creation. God's going to redeem his creation rather than wipe it out. And he concludes that chapter that because of our future hope, the work that we do in the Lord now, the work that you do now is not in vain. It's not in vain. This means that our imaginations need to be shaped towards a lifetime of faithfulness rather than success. Faithfulness rather than success. And I know this is hard because so much in our culture right now celebrates success. Celebrates success and achievement. Right? I feel it. I mean, I feel this and wrestle with Jesus' call for faithfulness over success regularly. But a question we need to wrestle with is what would it look like for you to pursue careers through the lens of Christ's love for your neighbor, to let that aim you and guide you as you consider the work that you will do for the rest of your life, whether that work be caring for children or fighting for justice, whether it be doing business or serving the church, practicing law or making decisions in the boardroom, like whatever it is that you step into after you leave wake in your work, Christ calls you to faithfulness in his love. So that's work. And I also want to say briefly, what does this mean for the church? The church, this means that this call, this call to faithfulness over success, this means that bigger is not better. Um, this means that God's saying that he rewards faithfulness in very little. He says nothing about success with a lot. So what does this have to do with the church? Let me ask you this question. Um, in your mind, in your imagination, what church does Jesus love more? The mega church with seven services or the storefront church with 15 people? The flashy new thing or the faithful old thing? The enthusiasm machine or the church that faithfully plugs along? Did you know that most churches, the average church in America is less than 80 people? Um, but what churches get celebrated, right? Which ones do have blogs written about them? Where are the statistics? Which pastors get lifted up? It's mega churches, right? It's the successful pastors. We have this whole culture of success in ministry that lifts up the big and the powerful and the successful. But friends, if your pastor is focused on success, he is going to build his little kingdom on your backs. At the end of John's gospel, when Jesus reinstates Peter, um, Peter who betrayed him three times, when Jesus reinstates him, he doesn't call him to go be a success. He doesn't tell him to go do ministry as effectively or efficiently as possible. He doesn't privilege size or growth. Do you know what he says to Peter? His words to Peter? He says, feed my sheep. He says, take care of my lambs. And if your pastor is focused on faithfulness, he'll actually pastor you. He'll do the work that Jesus calls him to do in 1 Peter 5, to shepherd the flock of God among you. And friends, this is what you need. Jesus gives us pastors and elders because he knows that we need people to shepherd us. And this is my call. Like this This is my call in your lives. And the reason we need this is because when people you love die... And when you suffer, success will give you nothing. 
You need faithfulness. Jesus gives us pastors because he cares for us. And he calls pastors, including myself, to be faithful to him and to you. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. There are many pastors who faithfully serve large churches. And I'm sure that there are um, pastors who are driven by success in small churches. But regardless of the size of the church, the call of the pastor is to be faithful to the call of Jesus, to not pursue success. So for our work and for the church, this means that Jesus may call you into work that won't be successful. And that he delights in churches that don't look successful. Because it's not about success. It's about faithfulness with the gifts he's given us. And I know this sounds crazy, right? I know this sounds crazy because your world is saturated by success. And that to pursue anything other than success sounds foolish. Not just foolish, but crazy. You live and work in this pressure cooker. Like Wake Forest... This pressure to succeed, to not squander your potential, to not squander your earning potential or whatever potential they put on it, right? Just you're, you're, fair, you're terrified of, of, of ruining this. And there's this elitism that circulates on college campuses, right? I'm sure you've, you've heard it or felt it. I mean, you swim in it here. And it sounds like this. It sounds like this. Don't waste your summers serving children at summer camp. Don't waste your summers interning at a nonprofit. You'll squander your potential. It sounds like this. Your life will only have meaning and purpose only if you achieve at the highest level. Whether that's Harvard Law School or landing a job with the big four or getting into med school at a top institution. And Jesus says, sure, go do that stuff. Go participate in my love there. But that's not what I measure. That's not what I measure. So the question for you is, have you been faithful with the very little that I've entrusted to you? So this is the main plot of this parable, and into it, Jesus introduces the subplot, right? The nobleman leaves, and then the citizens incite this insurrection. They stage a coup. They send this delegation to have him overthrown because they do not want the master to rule them. And what Jesus is doing here is he's helping his disciples to see that while they are called to pursue faithfulness, he is going to leave them. And the people who hate Jesus will oppress his people, and that will make believing his promises even more difficult. So I want to ask you, what would you do if you were in this parable? Right? Imagine that you're one of these servants. This nobleman has just given you a mina. You're like, sweet, 100 days pay. Right? And then you hear of this budding insurrection. Your world is filled with political instability. Like, imagine it's a mix between like our current political climate and the walking dead. Have that in your head. And then your boss comes to you and he says, I'm going to go become king. Some people are going to give me a kingdom. Here's some money. I'm coming back. And then once he leaves, everyone around you says, all right, now it's time to overthrow the guy. Like, let's overthrow him. We don't want him to be our king. Now, what is the logical thing to do in that situation? It's to bury the money, right? The logical thing is to take the money and to hide it and to wait to see who wins. Like, is the nobleman going to win? Is he going to come back and actually be king? Or is this insurrection going to win? To go and hide the money. Because the last thing you want to do is bet all of your money on this promise with a losing side of publicly identifying with this wannabe absent king. And so when the nobleman asks his servants to engage in business with this financial gift, this is what he's saying. He's saying, will you publicly identify with me and my kingdom even when I'm gone and you're surrounded by my enemies? And what his servants do with their money reveals their answer to this question. What this means is that what we do with finite things, what we do with our time and our money, 
Um, It exposes our true priorities. It exposes our allegiance, our loves. And this is exactly what's happening here. What these servants do with their money exposes what they believe and think about the nobleman. Right? Because kingdoms are all about allegiances and loyalties. Like if you watch Game of Thrones, you know this. Right? Disclaimer, I've never seen Game of Thrones. And so I was like, I need to figure out how to describe kingdoms. So I got on YouTube and searched, what is Game of Thrones? Ten second answer. Um, and so this interviewer went to some Game of Thrones convention and interviewed people. Can you tell us what Game of Thrones is in ten seconds? Um, the first one was blood, murder, incest, dragons, war. And one. And then five people said, to summarize it, said, everyone dies as a summary. Um, and then one person said, everyone dies and they fight over a fancy kingdom. Okay, here's why this is helpful. Why that's helpful. Um, because kingdoms are about allegiance and loyalty. This means that it's not enough just to think that Jesus is great, right? A great moral teacher or even a great God. The question Jesus puts before you with this parable is this. Will you be identified with him and his cause when you're surrounded by enemies and opposition? And what you do with the gifts he gives you, these very little gifts, reveals your answer to this question. And unlike Game of Thrones, the opposition to Jesus in this world is real. And it's often a matter of life and death. And God promises that his church will endure. But he makes no specific promises to the church in the West or in America or anywhere else. And Jesus tells us this parable because he doesn't want us to be naive. Opposition to Jesus is everywhere, both overt and subtle. It can come in the form of pastors and professors and parents and friends. But if there's one thing that Jesus is clearly teaching here is that he calls us to follow him and to publicly identify him with him, even when he seems absent and when enemies abound. I heard a story um, from this scholar, Kenneth Bailey, about the Christian church in, in Latvia, the Lutheran church in Latvia. And when they interview candidates for ministry, the most important question they ask these people who are interviewing to be um, pastors is, when were you baptized? Because if it was before communism, um, they ask, when were you baptized? Before or after communism? Because if the answer is before, that says a lot. Because the opposition to the gospel under communism was so intense. But if the answer is after, that they were baptized after communism, then there will be a lot more questions about why this person wants to be a minister. So a question for us, a question for you to consider is, are you publicly identified? Are we publicly identified with the gospel of the bloody cross and the empty tomb? And if not, why not? This is what Jesus is doing in this parable. He's saying that in the end, it's really about our hearts, our heart allegiances, our heart allegiance to the king. It's about our obedience out of allegiance. He calls you to faithfulness and he'll bear the fruit. But if your heart is unaligned, if your allegiances are elsewhere and you do whatever you want with his resources, he's saying that he will judge your heart. Jesus is saying how we spend ourselves, our money, our reputation, our times, our gifts, all of it. It is always an indication of which kingdom we're living for. And so following Jesus means putting all of your eggs in one basket with no backup plan. And this is so hard for us because we are so good at keeping our options open. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Martin Luther um, said this. He said, faith is a living, daring hope. It's a living, daring hope. Um, There's a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was a 20th century German uh, pastor and theologian. And he publicly opposed Hitler from the beginning. 
Hitler's rise to power publicly opposed him from the beginning and ended up being martyred. He ended up being killed for his faith. And this is something he wrote in a book called The Cost of Discipleship. He says this. He says, the cross is laid on every Christian. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender our lives to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or maybe a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. So the key question that you have to wrestle with is why would you leave behind your old life and follow Jesus in the midst of a hostile world and an absent king? And that answer to that question has everything to do with who you believe Jesus is. The answer to that question has everything to do with how you understand who Jesus is. C.S. Lewis wrote that um, when we are faced with the question of who Jesus is, we're left with three options. Um, he, is, uh, he says this, he says, people often say that Jesus is a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. And C.S. Lewis says, this is the one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. Like this parable is not a great moral lesson. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. So the third servant who hides the money has this distorted view of who the master is. And he offers this lame excuse. Um, The nobleman in this parable is incredibly generous. And the question that Jesus puts before us is this. Do you follow him because you love him? Or is it because you're afraid of him and afraid of what he might do to you? So what do we do with the ending of this parable, right? Verse 27, this like call to the slaughter of his enemies. And this ends like a lot of parables do. It ends open-ended, right? The parable doesn't end, doesn't show the sentence carried out. And by leaving it open, Jesus is putting the question to us. Will you side with the true king or with his enemies? Because the only refuge from the conquering king is in the conquering king. And as the story of Luke goes on in the next several chapters, we find this astonishing revelation that the king that we are called to pledge allegiance to is the king who dies in the place of his enemies. And this king is coming back. And rather than than urging us to follow him out of fear of being punished, Jesus reveals the reason for us to love him even more, is that his grace goes so far beyond the gifts he has given us. His grace extends to him dying for us even as we misuse the gifts he's given us. Right? All of our hearts tell us that God is a hard man who treats us unfairly. Right? All of our hearts do this. It says God, is, God is, is severe. He's a hard man who treats us unfairly. But those accusations fall away at the foot of the cross. They fall away at the foot of the cross. The call that Jesus extends, this call to put all of our eggs in his basket with no backup plan, 
This call to faithfully steward the gifts he's given us rather than live for our own success. Right? This is the call that he has. He says, if anyone comes after me, he must take up his cross daily and follow me. And this call that Jesus extends to us is a call to align ourselves with him. Because he first identified with us. Because the only thing that can truly melt our calloused hearts, the only thing that can truly change and melt our suspicion is to see his love poured out on the bloody cross and to embrace the hope of the empty tomb. tomb. Because the faithfulness that Jesus requires of us, he first provides. When you look at the cross, what do you see? You see God's amazing faithfulness. Jesus chose to lose for you. This is what the cross is. Jesus chose to lose for you. He gave up the possibility of success. Right? He was in his 30s, prime of his life. He gave up the possibility of success. He chose to lose for you. Because our sin created a position in which Jesus could not win. Our sin created a a position in which Jesus could not win. And the only way for him to save us was to lose. Jesus chose faithfulness over success. And that's what the cross is, is God's faithfulness to save us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you um, for this good news. Jesus, that because of your great love um, on the cross, that you chose faithfulness to us and to your Father over success. Um, Lord, we pray that you would help us Help us to do the same, to see you as the one who did this for us, that we might um, follow you in a life of faithfulness. Um, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.